2: This episode is both a final part in our little series of supplementals on the men in the lives of England's two Tudor queens regnant, and of the second season, the Tudor season, of the Queens of England podcast. It's been a lot of episodes covering a lot of contentious politics, and I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I have done. I'm going to be taking a little two-week break after this episode airs, as I have a little holiday to Spain planned, plus and work commitments, but mainly because I think we all need a bit of a break from all of this Tudor excitement. Then we'll be back to look at England's final queens before the union with Scotland, the Stuarts. Now, quite a few of you have been either trying to persuade me to keep on going with the Queens of England podcast, or inquiring about what I'm going to be doing next. Well, I'm going to be being a frightful tease, and say that yes, I do have an idea of what I'm going to do next, and no, I won't be telling you just yet. All I will say is that I don't think that you'll be disappointed. I'd also like to thank my newest Patreon supporter, Kristen, who has joined my noble band of patrons. If you'd like to join her and all the other kind and amazing people who make this podcast possible, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. You can also help the show by leaving a little review on iTunes and also by checking out the show on Facebook and Twitter. To those new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello. And welcome to the Queens of England Podcast. Supplemental Elizabeth Suitors, the Valois Princes. Before I get going, I would like to make a quick note about nomenclature. Now, as you have noticed, I tend to prefer to call my nobles by their title rather than by their names, as I find that these are often easier to keep track of. But in this episode, we hit a bit of a snag, as not only do both of the men that we're about to talk about change their titles partway through the story, but in fact both of them end up having the titles of Duke of Anjou at one point. Therefore, I've made the executive decision to generally refer to them by their first names. Okay. Great, let's get going. In the early years of Elizabeth's reign, there was very little chance of her marrying a French royal. England was still firmly orientated towards the Habsburgs, and all of the French princes were too young to even get married. And that is before you get to the issues of religion. By the late 1560s, though, the situation in France had changed. First of all, those princes were now of age, and while Elizabeth had rejected the French king Charles IX, his brother, Henry Duke of Anjou, was still single. And second, as I've already said, Anglo-Habsburg relations were now icy, and so those objections were now gone. Henry, Duke of Anjou, was the fourth son of the former French king Henry II and Catherine de Medici, and around 18 years younger than Elizabeth as you might expect, the reasoning behind the match was intrinsically linked up with the tumult of the French religious politics and complex international diplomacy. France was still engulfed by the wars of religion, and Protestants hoped that they could get Henry out of the conservative camp and into theirs by marrying the duke off to a Protestant queen. This would have the added benefit of preventing him from marrying and then freeing, yes, you guessed it, Mary I of Scotland, who is always Elizabeth's great rival in the marriage market, but who was currently in English custody. Furthermore, a marriage alliance with England could lead to the formation of a great anti-Habsburg league who could finally take on the might of Spain. King Charles saw the benefits of removing his brother from the political scene, and his mother, Catherine de' Medici, saw the diplomatic benefits. But Henry himself said that he had no intention of marrying an old bastard heretic like Elizabeth. In England, things weren't too favourable either. People were concerned about Henry's Catholicism, Frenchness, and youth. Moreover, he was likely to succeed his brother as King of France, and no one wanted the prospect of a reverse Henry V situation developing. Oh, and plus, there was a chance that this could lead to war with Spain, and no one wanted that. Plus, France was England's oldest enemy, and people were naturally disinclined to ally with them. But proponents of the match argued that England's relations with Spain were pretty bad anyway, especially after they brutally suppressed a revolt in the Netherlands. With Elizabeth being excommunicated in 1569, there was a very real chance that England could face Spanish invasion, marriage or no marriage. Therefore, the prospect of a French alliance in this light looks far more attractive. And then there was the question of her cousin Mary, who I will now refer to as Mary Stuart, actually, as she is technically no longer a queen. There was considerable French pressure on England to release her, and Charles was threatening to send troops to Scotland to pacify the kingdom. Negotiations over a marriage with Henry could also delay such a provocative action. They also argued that, while Henry had taken up arms against the Protestant Huguenots, this had been for political rather than religious reasons. Finally, When presented with the question of the possibility that he may accede to the French throne, they argue that that was actually a tick in his favour. He was a man of impeccable royal blood, perfectly suitable to marry the Queen of England. Negotiations began in the early 1570s, and Elizabeth offered Henry, through his mother Catherine de Medici, who was the lead negotiator on the French side, essentially the same deal that she had offered all of her other suitors. You all know what it is, so I won't go over it again. On the question of religion, she made it clear that there would be no prevarication like there had been with Archduke Charles. If it destroyed all chance for a marriage, then so be it. The French response was pretty predictable. Henry wanted privileges that went far beyond those that had been accepted, albeit grudgingly, by Philip of Spain. He wanted to be crowned king the moment he married Elizabeth, a significant role in government, and a massive annual financial allowance. In the event of them having children and Elizabeth predeceasing her, he wanted to be allowed to keep his position and allowance until the child came of age. And then there was the question of religion. The French insisted that the marriage ceremony should have no right that made Henry feel, quote, uncomfortable, and that he and his household should have the freedom to practice their religion as they saw fit. Elizabeth, in response, tried to offer some very minor concessions, but was immovable on all the important matters. In particular, on the point of allowing Henry freedom of religion, she wrote that it was, quote, "...specially forbidden by our laws. We cannot, without manifest offence and peril to our state, accord thereto." The French were aghast at this. Clearly, they had not been paying attention to all of Elizabeth's other marital negotiations. What was the point of marrying a queen if you had such limited powers while she was alive, and pretty much none after she died? As you may suspect, though, the biggest sticking point was religion. The French understanding was that Elizabeth was essentially saying that Henry had to convert to Protestantism if he wanted to become king, and that was out of the question. Again, there seems to have been a misunderstanding on the part of the English negotiators on the veracity of religious convictions held by the suitor. The French made it very clear that Henry was a pious Roman Catholic, and this took the English rather by surprise. There followed a similar pattern of back and forth between the two camps, as had happened with the negotiations with the Habsburgs, with each side more or less reasserting their intransigence and hoping that the other would back down. Elizabeth restated that she was not asking Henry to convert, she just could not allow him to attend Mass. But for Catholics, Mass is a sacrament, and so denying him that, she was essentially asking him to give up his religion. This would appear to come down to a fundamental misunderstanding of what it meant to be a Catholic, and therefore it would appear that there was never really any hope of this marriage going through. For Elizabeth, allowing her husband to practice the Catholic faith was against English law and threatened domestic tranquility. For the French, forbidding him from practising Mass would make him essentially a heretic. You can see why things reached impasse, And yet, they all still soldiered on. In order to make some progress, they heroically decided to ignore the religious concerns and move on to the other bits of negotiation, presumably to try and build up some goodwill. The diplomatic and geopolitical advantages of the match were too important to let it be allowed to fail so easily. Securing an anti-Habsburg alliance and pulling Henry away from the extreme Catholic faction was a vital part of French foreign policy, and so they sought the English terms for everything else. What they got in return was essentially the marriage treaty for Mary and Philip, but with all the controversial stuff left out, i.e. religion, money, and Henry's kingly status. This gesture of goodwill led to the French dispatching an envoy called Delarchant to start the formal negotiations, but as soon as they began, it all fell apart, as they still could not get past the religious question. Keen to make some progress, Cecil attempted to smooth things over by telling de Delarchant to stop bringing it up formally with Elizabeth. If he could just, you know, be cool, then Henry would be allowed to practice his Catholicism in secret, but it could never formally be put into the agreement. Just keep it all informal and hush-hush, and maybe, just maybe, a deal could be done. Delachan thought that this was a cracking idea... But Elizabeth, when she heard about it, hated it, and so did Henry when he was told about it. Indeed, it appears that he was becoming more and more influenced by the day by radical Catholics and was unwilling to make any concessions regarding his faith. And that was that. Talks continued for a few months through the summer and early autumn of 1571, but no progress was made. Once it all collapsed, there were further discussions about whether an Anglo-French alliance could be agreed to without a marriage to seal it, And after a lot of wrangling, this culminated with the signing of the Treaty of Blois in 1572, where each side agreed to help each other out in case of Spanish attack, and that neither party would aid the enemy of the other. What is interesting about this round of marital negotiations is how little it affected domestic politics. Remember the turmoil back in England during the negotiations with Archduke Charles? Elizabeth's court had split in two, with the rival factions engaging in bitter debate and recrimination. Not so here. Indeed, Leicester, who you can usually count on to sabotage any attempt to marry off Elizabeth to someone other than himself, seemed actually to be in favour of the match, possibly because it would leave him free to marry. As far as Parliament and the wider Kingdom were concerned, again there was far less pressure on Elizabeth than there had been before. Pretty much all the bigwigs were in favour of the match, and so none of them were whispering in their ears, getting them all het up. They were happy to let the councillors take point on this, and Elizabeth was happy to let them, so long as they didn't budge on the red lines that she had set out. Would she have married Henry if he had agreed to her terms? Well, there is the argument that she set those red lines to be so deliberately severe that it made it completely impossible for an agreement to be made, but I'm not so certain that's true. Henry was offered better terms than Charles had been, and Elizabeth continued to make small concessions in the hopes of making progress. It seems that she was willing to go that extra step with Henry because of the changing situation on the continent and the advantages that a French alliance would bring. She was worried about his age, expressing to the council how ridiculous she would look going to chapel with a man young enough to be her son. And that actually is quite interesting because it exposes perhaps an obvious difference here between a ruling queen marrying and a king. Henry VIII had had frequently married women far younger than himself. The age difference between Elizabeth and Henry was the same as the one between her father and Jane Seymour, and the disparity only became larger with Henry VIII's subsequent wives. It was not considered an issue, really, if a king married a far younger wife, but it was constantly a worry for Elizabeth. Even putting aside the issue of being of childbearing age, she worried that she could not keep a younger man interested as she aged. It really was a man's world. These negotiations, though, did not come to nothing, because all that diplomatic contact made the Treaty of Blois possible, which led to what has been described as a diplomatic revolution. After centuries of enmity, England was now in the French camp and opposing the Habsburgs. Kinda. It's a little more complicated than that, as they sought to tame France as well. But even so, this was a big deal, and it had a lot to do with Elizabeth and the search for a husband. This new alignment, though, was still rather tenuous. Medieval and Renaissance types always liked to tie things up with a nice little bow and secure things with marriages. Clearly, they were not going to get anywhere with Elizabeth and Henry, and the consensus was that it was down to the fact that the prince was never really into it. But what about his younger brother, Francis, the Duke of Alençon? Now, if you thought that the age gap between Henry and Elizabeth was large, then it gets even worse here, as there was a 21-year age gap between her and his brother. But, on the face of it, things looked a lot rosier with Francis. Unlike his brother, who was in the ultra-Catholic camp, he was the champion of the Protestant Huguenots. He was also far less likely to inherit the French throne, which, on balance, was seen to create more problems than it was worth for the English. The match was first mooted in early 1572, just after the negotiations between Elizabeth and Henry had collapsed, but the Queen had shot them down. She was tired of French intransigence, and saw no point in trying again with an even younger suitor. A few months later, though, Elizabeth had mellowed. Parliament was starting to get restless about the succession again, and the situation in the Spanish Netherlands was worrying everyone. Protestant rebels had taken a number of towns and there was concern that the French may come in on their side and then seize them for themselves. Elizabeth was now 39, which was right on top of the hill when it came to childbearing. It was now or never, really. Francis, while liked by the Huguenots, was still a Catholic and demanded access to Mass, as his brother had, but he did agree to carry out all worship in private, exclude any subject of the Queen from his services, and attend Protestant services with her willingly. He also stated that he was willing to not write his permission to attend Mass into the treaty. He would take her at her word. This concession on Francis' part led to a split in the English Council, as it did mollify quite a few. Cecil and Leicester were in favour of an agreement on these terms, as were many other powerful voices. Most of the dissenters were far less high status. But Elizabeth was still unwilling to go against her own religious settlement and allow Catholic worship for her husband when she banned it for everyone else even in secret. Apparently, she was also worried that he was not exactly a looker, and rather short. Elizabeth's response to Francis' proposal of marriage was initially very negative, but she was persuaded by Cecil that maybe after meeting him in person, it may allay her worries about his age and appearance. This is an interesting move, and perplexed many at the time. As historian Susan Doran puts it, quote, "...the ambiguity of the response was almost certainly not by design, but the result of Elizabeth's own perplexity and irresolution about the best course to follow. Her instinct warned her against the marriage to Alençon. Its cost to her personal happiness seemed too high. There were incalculable political risks arising from his religion, and the presence at court of a deformed husband who was young enough to be her son would diminish her dignity." On the other hand, it was important to nurture the Anglo-French Entente, which was already under strain because of the divergent policies towards the Netherlands and civil war in Scotland. Elizabeth could also see that the marriage offered her other political advantages and probably the last opportunity to produce a son. Finally then, there seemed to be a good chance that Elizabeth could find a husband and everyone seemed to be at least cautiously optimistic that a deal could be done. And then, news of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre reached England and ruined everything. For you Song of Ice and Fire fans, basically imagine the Red Wedding, but bloodier. Huguenot leaders who had gathered for a royal wedding were massacred without warning on the orders of the French King Charles IX and his mother Catherine de Medici. The slaughter spread out to the provinces, leading to the deaths of tens of thousands of Protestants. Understandably, this all was met with revulsion back in England, and all support for the marriage completely collapsed. Both sides kept up the pretense because it suited them to keep diplomatic channels open, but there was no chance that a Protestant queen could marry the brother of a king who had ordered the mass murder of so many members of her religion. How could she trust any declaration he made about religion with that kind of blood flowing in his veins? Things then went from bad to worse in France, when Charles died and Henry, former Duke of Anjou and suitor of Elizabeth, became Henry III of France. This led to full-on civil war, and Francis, thanks to his sympathies for more moderate factions at court, was made a virtual prisoner. He then escaped and joined the fight against his brother. The fight went on for a few years, until finally a peace agreement was made at Beaulieu. Elizabeth was disgusted with this capitulation on the part of Francis, and it's only got worse when he switched sides to joining with his brother in yet another civil war that broke out in 1577, where he led a royal army against the Huguenots. Understandably, this rather put an end to the negotiations, but they were reopened a year later thanks to concerns about the Netherlands. So, we've talked a lot about this already, but... In summary, the Spanish were having problems keeping their subjects in the Netherlands quiet, which had led to the breaking out of the Eighty Years' War, also known as the Dutch War of Independence. Elizabeth, who hated foreign entanglements, planned to remain aloof, but everyone was worried about what would happen if France got involved on the Dutch side. They could become the new masters of the Netherlands, who were critical to the English economy, as that is where they sent most of their exports. No one wanted to give the old enemy that kind of power, and yet... That is what was happening. The Dutch appealed to Francis for help, and he accepted. Back in England, the only way that Elizabeth's advisers could think of to stop this from happening was to distract him with the prospect of marrying Elizabeth, which may prevent him seeking glory and treasure, fighting the Spanish. His brother and mother back in France were keen on the marriage for a similar reason. Francis was a troublemaker, and he was risking drawing France into a long drawn-out conflict with Spain. France had quite enough problems within her own borders without creating new ones abroad. For his part, France has probably welcomed these overtures from Elizabeth as, quite apart from the prestige of marrying the Queen of England, she would surely lend him men and money for his expedition. Ambassadors were sent to England to negotiate terms, and they were told to tell Elizabeth that he was willing to take her direction in the Netherlands. Elizabeth was very friendly with these ambassadors, and usual hot-button topics like religion and status could be resolved once they met, something she did insist upon. The main supporters of this match, we may call the Peace Party, as they hoped that by doing so they could keep English troops from being sent to the Low Countries to support the Dutch against the Spanish. In their view, this would be both expensive and incredibly dangerous, as it would raise the ire of the powerful Spanish. These included the usual suspects, led by Cecil and Sussex. Opposing them were the War Party, those who viewed it as their duty to support the Dutch revolutionaries against their Catholic oppressors. They were led at court by, yep, you guessed it, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Now, remember how he had tried to win Elizabeth's hand through the medium of theatre? Well, now he and his faction sought to persuade her to go to war and abandon Francis in the same way. The pageant they put on cloaked Elizabeth in the role of a pure, virginal, sacred queen, duty-bound to help defend the helpless against the forces of the Antichrist. This had the dual purpose of showing the French that the Queen was not for marrying and that she would not help a Catholic power dominate good Protestants. Torn between these two factions that were both led by men she loved and trusted, Elizabeth prevaricated, unsure as to what her best course of action was. In the end, she sent her portrait and selection of gifts to Francis and accepted his chosen negotiator, Jean de Simier, to her court in order to start some serious talks. Now, while there was quite a bit of gift-giving and general schmoozing, This thing was going to be decided by more material concerns. Francis's troops in the Netherlands were going unpaid, and were getting no support from his brother, King Henry. For him, the motive for pursuing this match was clear. He needed men and money for his war. For Elizabeth, her motivations are a little more complicated. I'm not going to go into details about the 80 years' war, but let's just say that things weren't going well for the Dutch. The uprising had been led by various states that made up the region, and some of the states had recently defected to the Spanish. As much as the English feared the French involvement and interference in the region, they equally did not want to see Spain squash the rebellion. Therefore, and I hope you can follow, Elizabeth wanted to marry Francis so that his brother, the King of France, would feel obligated to bring pressure to bear on the King of Spain to make peace with his rebellious Dutch subjects, whose mercantile skills were vital to the English economy and whose Protestantism they felt obligated to protect. Oh, and the King of Spain was making overtures to take the throne of Portugal in dynastic union which would yet add more power to his arsenal. This all made an Anglo-French alliance all the more vital. It's the stuff that all true love is based on. Simier was in England for two months and Elizabeth made sure that he was treated very generously and lavishly with feasts, dances and jousts galore she talked of her love for Francis and seemingly downplayed the alliance or the political and religious difficulties that had derailed her previous marital negotiations. Now, this is likely all just a front to move things along, though the French were encouraged by Elizabeth's apparent enthusiasm. Simier did, though, want to try and get onto the more nitty-gritty and thrash out the terms of a deal before his master came along to seal it all. They got their way in March 1579 and proper talks began. Despite everything, It does appear that Elizabeth was serious about the possibility of marrying this young man, and her councillors knew it. Therefore, they took their negotiations over the proposed terms that it would offer very seriously. There were long and fractious debates in the divided council, but there were a few things that they did agree on. They would not allow Francis freedom of religion, nor joint authority with Elizabeth over patronage, nor would they grant him a coronation or a pension. They decided, though, that these questions could be debated after his arrival. But the real disagreement was over the principle of the matter rather than the detail. With Dudley no longer in a position of prominence, the anti-marriage party used the same arguments as they had used against her previous attempts to marry, but they also argued that, as Elizabeth was now 46, it would be unconscionably dangerous to attempt to conceive. What if she died in childbirth? They also worried that, with King Henry III of France likely to die childless, Francis may succeed him, leading to England being governed from Paris by a Catholic king, and that would be a disaster. To be fair, these are all good arguments and not easy ones for Cecil and Sussex to counter, but that they did. Their position was that it was extremely unlikely that Elizabeth would or could get pregnant, and that the security of the realm must come first. Alliance with France was the best course of action to keep England safe, and for that to happen, Elizabeth must marry Francis. While the French were disheartened by the English initial rejection of their proposed terms, they were encouraged when the pro-marriage party gained enough traction to persuade Elizabeth to issue an official invitation for Francis to come to England. Interestingly, this came at the same time as Elizabeth heard about Dudley's marriage to Lettuce Knollys, leading some to argue that she invited her new toy boy over as «revenge», Though I do credit her with a little more grown-upness than that. Francis's visit was rather under the radar because, as we'll soon see, he was not exactly a popular choice with the English. With very little fanfare, Francis departed the French court and arrived at Greenwich in mid-August fifteen seventy nine. As one might expect, this secret visit did not remain a secret for too long, leading Elizabeth to order some very stringent security measures to protect her toy boy. In court, however, he was treated mostly warmly, but with no outright hostility, even from those opposed to the match. Elizabeth, it seems, was mightily impressed by the young man. She found him attractive, gallant and charming, and took to calling him her little frog, a reference apparently to his gravelly voice. For his part, Francis seems to have been impressed with her as well, saying that he had been surprised by how much he had liked her. The attraction, though, was clearly fairly one-sided on Elizabeth's part, and she apparently took to carrying around his likeness in her prayer book, and appearing to many to be like a girl in love. When he departed a couple of weeks later, Elizabeth gave him various tokens showing her affection for him – and he left her a series of rather cute letters. This news that the marriage may in fact happen was not exactly met with acclamation by the English people, who, stirred by fiery Protestant preachers and polemics from angry writers, were very much opposed to the match. My favourite piece of propaganda was written by an East Anglian lawyer, and was given the pithy title... The discovery of a gaping gulf, whereinto England is like to be followed by another French marriage, if the Lord forbid not the Baines, by letting Her Majesty see the sin and punishment thereof. You know, really rolls off the tongue, that one. It argued against the marriage using the same old arguments that had been presented time and time again, but also presented a rather more nakedly xenophobic bent, reflecting the attitudes of many English at the time. It was merciless in its critique, led to Elizabeth calling on the Lord Mayor to collect and burn every copy. The author and one of his distributors were arrested and had their right hands chopped off as punishment for their crimes, which is, you know, a reaction. This arbitrary punishment only fanned the flames and led to increased criticism of the proposed marriage. Further pamphlets were published and songs composed decrying the match, including The Most Strange Wedding of the Frog and the Mouse, where the frog drowned a mouse that he was supposed to be helping, leading to a war between frogs and mice. The allegories there are fairly obvious. There are so many interesting works produced around this time against the marriage, and I can't go into them all. But the basic fact of the matter is that Elizabeth, Cecil and the pro-marriage party were entirely taken aback by the extent of the opposition shown by the English to the marriage. They were still for the match, but they could not command the majority of the council, which remained bitterly divided. The pro-marriage types even suggested admitting known Catholics to the council to firm up their numbers, but that was a step too far for Elizabeth, though she did apparently seriously consider it. She did, however, give them permission to draw up, with Simier a marriage treaty. It followed fairly closely the language and provisions of the marriage treaty of Mary and Philip. He would be king, but in name only – all power would rest with Elizabeth, and the question of coronation would be decided later. He was a better financial settlement than Philip did, but a far less generous religious settlement. The compromise agreed was that Francis and his entourage would be allowed practice their religion, but alone and in a private place. Now this was only really the start of negotiations, as both Francis and Elizabeth had to sign off on it. After objecting to similar religious clauses in other marriage contracts for decades... Elizabeth signalled that she would be willing to accept them, but only if she could get the consent of the people, which would be a tough ask. For Francis, this deal was as far as he was willing to go. He had given a lot of ground on this treaty in terms of his own power. He would not accept anything less. Unfortunately, though, it was made apparent to Elizabeth that she was never going to get the consent of the English to marry on these terms making even this deal apparently a non-starter. Unwilling to give in so easily, Francis tried using a similar tactic as Sussex had used during the negotiations with Archduke Charles, whether the religious clause would be omitted, whether in practice he would be able to exercise his religion in private. As with Sussex, this was rejected by Elizabeth as being totally unrealistic. There was no way on earth that such a thing could be kept private. So, all the pieces on the board seem to be in just the same place that they had been for every single marriage that we have discussed so far. Right? Well, yes. But the big difference here is that the rapidly changing situation on both the continent and the British Isles did have an effect. France was extending ever more influence over the Scottish regent. The Pope had reissued his bull of excommunication over Elizabeth. He also supported an Irish uprising, which was supported by a small Spanish invasion. Philip had taken Lisbon and now ruled as King of Portugal. And in the Low Countries, the Dutch States General offered France his sovereignty over them in June 1580. It was that final development that forced Elizabeth to take the next step and invite French commissioners over to finalise the marriage deal, in exchange for Francis going no further with his aims of overlordship over the Netherlands. In this, she had the support of the King of France, who had no desire to see his younger brother gain so much power. For them, the priority was gaining the English as an ally, as they too were seriously concerned by the ambition of Philip of Spain. This delegation eventually arrived in England in January 1581, and it was a It was composed of over 500 nobles, councillors, officers of state, and other assorted notables. In England, they were met with a very warm reception from the Queen, but a decidedly frosty one from the anti-marriage party and their allies amongst the people. Parliament was opposed, and the pro-marriage types were having all sorts of problems in uniting to promote the match. It became quickly clear to Elizabeth that it would be impossible to gain public support for her marriage, so she and her council regrouped, and both factions agreed that the best course of action would be to ignore the matrimonial question and focus on getting an alliance with France instead. But, and of course you all knew there was going to be a but, the French negotiators had no jurisdiction to negotiate such a thing, and were not inclined to do so in any case. Okay, I hope you've been following this twisting tale of delay and stalemate, because it's about to get more complicated. Elizabeth could not send these negotiators home, because she wanted this alliance very badly. But equally, she knew that for the security of her own position, she could not agree to marry Francis. So, she decided to stall yet further. But the only way to do that would be to allow her own advisors to sign the marriage treaty, which amounted to an agreement in principle, but only became binding once signed by herself and Francis. The agreement essentially gave in to all the French demands, but this was only done because the English had no intention of honouring it. As soon as the French party arrived back in France, they were told that Elizabeth had changed her mind, citing as an excuse his involvement in the Netherlands, basically saying that England would not be saddled with another foreign war started by a Queen's husband. Unless the French agreed to fight such a war alone, then the deal was off. King Henry and Catherine de' Medici were not thrilled by this, as they correctly surmised this was all part of a plan for Elizabeth to either get them to fight the Spanish for her, and that she would have very little of the risk, or expense, or just simply get out of the marriage. As expected, Henry utterly rejected Elizabeth's demands, and so he reached an all-new and exciting stalemate, whereby Elizabeth wanted an alliance but no marriage, while Henry would only accept an alliance with a marriage. Isn't this all just rip-roaring stuff? With things getting nowhere, a new arrangement was reached in England, whereby nothing formal would be set up, but that Elizabeth did start to help fund France's campaigns in the Netherlands. As part of this, Francis made a visit to England in the autumn of 1581. While it seems that he had not given up on the hopes of marriage, this was mostly about getting more of Elizabeth's sweet, sweet money. Francis was welcomed warmly by the whole court. Unlike his first visit, this was a public one, with no deceptions. He and Elizabeth, it seems, got on as well as they had done so before, and the old spark was most certainly still there. Indeed, when news reached Paris of how well this visit was going, Henry thought the marriage might be back on the cards, and so redispatched negotiators. This was seemingly confirmed on a crazy night on a session day in November, where it seems that Elizabeth got a little carried away. According to some accounts, she called him, quote, her Prince Frog, kissed him on the lips, declared that she would marry him, and presented him with a ring. Some in attendance believed that this public declaration was essentially the marriage contract. In effect, they were married. Indeed, that was the perception abroad, as the French king rejoiced that finally his brother had brought on the Queen of England as an ally against the Spanish. The next day, though, she had a meeting with her councillors, who essentially told her off for being so rash. One did so in such a vociferous way that he was sent to the Tower for, quote, his overmatched and undutiful speaking touching this cause. Elizabeth then had what must have been an incredibly awkward conversation with her bay, telling him that she could not marry him. She used the it's not you, it's me excuse, claiming that he deserved a woman that could give him children. She said that she would continue to support his efforts in the Netherlands, but there was no chance of them marrying. Reports conflict as to how well Francis took this one stating that he flamboyantly threw the ring that Elizabeth had given him away, others saying he took it rather more magnanimously, as all he had really wanted was that support. And so, that was that. Negotiations continued with the French over an alliance, but it was clear that marriage was officially off the cards. In the end, the alliance did not come about, with instead the status quo of financial support being the result of all of this trouble. Sadly, things did not work out well at all for Francis. After departing England, he went back to the war in the Netherlands, and in 1583, he led a surprise attack known to history as the French Fury on the city of Antwerp. The whole thing was an absolute disaster, and almost all the French army were killed. France escaped, but his military career was over. To make matters worse, soon after, he contracted malaria and died in 1584 back in France. This whole messy decade of negotiation, prevarication, stalemate, temporary progress hope, more negotiation, more prevarication, and so on, is both quite dull and absolutely fascinating. It shows for everyone to see how the circumstances of Elizabeth's gender and religion made it functionally impossible for her to marry in the way that her predecessors had done before. Elizabeth, it seems, felt more affection, perhaps even love for Francis, than she had done for any man besides Robert Dudley, yet it was all for nothing. It achieved none of the hopeful foreign policy objectives and indeed only served in making Philip of Spain more antagonistic towards England, in a situation that would slide inexorably into the Anglo-Spanish wars that would dominate the final years of Elizabeth's reign. So, after spending three supplementals discussing Elizabeth and her suitors, how should we look back at all of this? Why did Elizabeth not marry? There was certainly no shortage of offers on the table, nor was there much wanting of support from many of her key supporters and counsellors for the various matches. There was a key need for an heir, and that could only be achieved through marriage. There is an argument that states that Elizabeth was always dead set against marriage, and that all of this was just a ruse on her part, a delaying game that she was playing to get the people off her back. I have a certain amount of sympathy for this view, insofar as I think that her default position was not to marry. She'd seen what had happened to her sister, and indeed what would end up happening to her cousin Mary, and so was temperamentally disinclined to consider taking a husband. That said, I equally believe that there were circumstances that could have led her to marry. The first is that if all her main counselors were in agreement on a candidate, and that that candidate was acceptable both to her and the people at large. This never happened, and there was always something against one of the candidates that we have talked about. With the foreign matches, more often than not, it was their Catholicism and their pride. With Robert Dudley, it was the circumstances surrounding his wife's death and his general unpopularity. The second one is particular to Robert Dudley, and that is if he had not been married, or if his wife had died in far less suspicious circumstances. I do buy into the notion that he and Elizabeth were in love, and so if the stars had been better aligned, I do believe that they would have wed. All the suitors angling for Elizabeth's hand seem to be in one of two camps – either not good enough for her in terms of family, rank or prestige, or too worryingly powerful and Catholic to be risked with England's queen. England was still an unusual power in Western Christendom in that it was Protestant, and there weren't a great range of Protestant princes that were available who offered the geopolitical advantage that was required in a royal wedding. When people think of monarchs in the Middle Ages and early modern period, they often see autocrats, proto-absolute monarchs, who could do whatever they wanted, with whom they wanted, whenever they wanted. This is simply not the case, at least in the English context, and especially not with Elizabeth. The views of her council were vitally important, as they could make or break her reign. If they could have agreed on a man, Elizabeth would likely have had to have married him, especially in her early years. But they didn't, and Elizabeth wasn't particularly inclined, and therefore we have the legend of the Virgin Queen. However, that all said, that doesn't mean that she didn't have feelings for the men whom she ultimately rejected. I've talked quite a bit about her affection for Robert Dudley, but there is also evidence of sorts for her feelings for Francis, Duke of Anjou and Avalancon in the form of a poem supposedly written by her. It is called On Monsieur's Departure, and though its authenticity has been questioned, it could well have been written by Elizabeth after Francis left her court for the final time. Now, I could read it, but I really cannot do it justice. However, in the famous TV drama Elizabeth R., made in the 1970s, Glenda Jackson, playing Elizabeth, reads an abridged version of the poem, and it is this that I will end this show on. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be back in three weeks.
0: I grieve and dare not show my discontent. I love and yet am forced to seem to hate. I do yet dare not say I ever meant. I seem stark mute, but inwardly do prate. I am and not. I freeze and yet am burned since from myself, my other self, I turned my care is like my shadow in the sun follows me flying flies when i pursue it stands and lies by me doth what i have done this too familiar care doth make me rue it. nor means i find to rid him from my breast till by the end of things it be suppressed Oh, let me live with some more sweet content or die and so forget what love e'er meant.